Hey everyone, Ian here with a quick note before the episode. We had some minor connectivity issues with Eco's stream while recording, so some of his audio got a little choppy. I managed to clean it up as much as possible, but there were a few instances that I had to leave in. One of the spots where it started cutting out was near the end, where Eco was doing his shoutouts and self-promotion. Please see the show notes for all names, websites, and social media pages listed. Now, let's get on with the show. Welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. Down by the bay, where the watermelons grow, back to my home, I dare not go. I'm Ian Woodworth. I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. And today we have a special guest, Eco, from the podcast The Lost Bay, and here to talk about his game, The Lost Bay. Eco, welcome to Undercommon Taste. Hi, folks. Thanks. Thanks a lot for having me. I'm super happy to be here. And yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks for joining us. I, I really appreciate you coming on because I've listened to your podcast for a while now, and I, I really enjoy the interviews that you do. It gives me a whole lot of insight into game design because mm -hmm. you bring in all of the different designers and talk about their methodologies and stuff. And mm -hmm. I feel like it's really helped me a lot. So I really appreciate that that well, you do. I'm glad. I'm glad about that. Yeah, I, I feel it's harder to answer questions, honestly. So <laughs> it feels like a tough thing for me to do today, but I'm, I'm happy to be here. And, well, yeah, it's weird being on the opposite side of the table sometimes. Yeah. yeah. So for our listeners who may not be familiar with you, can you give us a little bit of a general introduction, who you are, what you do? Oh, yeah, sure. So I, I go by the name of Eco. I'm a, an indie tabletop RPG designer and publisher. I run a small publishing house called The Lost Bay Studio, where I do publish my own zines, but mostly other people's zines and mostly bundles. I like to work with team of designers and together we've been publishing Matic bundles, a few of them, and we have a few more coming up. So, and also I am a podcaster, like, but to be honest, I haven't released many episodes in the last year, like, because it's been a bit complicated find a balance between designing publishing and podcasting so <laughs> so i um yeah so yeah this is me basically that's a lot to do um, all at once absolutely yeah yeah we we're trying to find a little bit of that balance too so you know trying to expand a little bit beyond the podcast and it's tough yeah so coming through you have this release of the game the bay and we got to take a sneak peek at it and i have to say this looks like so much fun it's got kind of that horror vibe to it so i think if you want something especially because you know halloween spooky season's coming up yeah. i think this is going to be really something perfect for that yeah thank you so how would you describe the lost bay what is it and what were you trying to get out of it Sure. So The Lost Bay is a horror game, as you mentioned, set in the 90s that never were. And the name of the game, The Lost Bay, is also the name of the setting in which you play. It's kind of a coastal suburb of a distant and mysterious city you don't know much about. And you play young adults that have been touched by a weird, which is an ancient supernatural force, and also a resource in the game. And that weird gives you extraordinary powers. And with those powers, you're going to confront and fight evil 
cults, supernatural beings, cursed VHS tapes, or the horror, basically. So, yeah, a horror game set in imaginary 90s that never were. Why did you decide to center the game thematically around the 90s? I mean, what is it a nostalgia thing? Is it yeah, yeah. trying to fill a niche that was just not being exploited? A little bit of both? Yeah, a, a bit of both, probably, or... Well, actually, I wasn't really aware that there was a niche to fill, and I'm happy <laughs> if, if my game can help filling it. And I think that probably what the 90s, and especially the early 90s, feel to me is like, I see them as a transition moment from an old world to a newer one, or at least that's the experience I had growing up in a rural place in Mediterranean Europe. So a time where you've got modern things like technology, computers, game consoles, but those things coexist with remnants of something ancient and archaic. And that's a, one of the essential traits of both the setting and the game you'll find in the setting, like I would say the classical lore of the 90s, like strip mall, skaters, punk music, 8-bit computers, stuff like that, but also ancient and horrific, actually, forces, beings, magic, immortals that are still there and living in a more modern world. So yeah, it's kind of a space and time between two eras, which makes it for me super fun and exciting to play because it creates a lot of clashes and contrasts and a lot of opportunities for story and for gameplay to happen. And about nostalgia, to be 100% honest, in the early 90s, I had to live without notice and in a very abrupt way the place where I was grew growing up, uh, which inspired a lot of the game. And I didn't come back for, I don't know, 18 years. I severed all ties. I didn't call friends. I didn't tell them I was leaving. I didn't I, was, I wasn't supposed to do, and so I just did what I was supposed to do. And so that place, which is the island of Corsica, and we can talk about it later if you want, kind of grew as a mythical place, you know? And I mean, I wasn't going back to it, so I was thinking about, about it, fantasizing it a lot, and it became the Lost Bay. Lost as, you can't go there because you don't know the road, but lost because it's gone. It's like, it's a fantasy place. So I like that, yeah. and I like... The time you picked, so you talk about that, and it's kind of really neat. So here in the United States and America, we have our generations, we divide things up. And my generations and generations, the millennials, you know, we lived in that time, and it's that conversion between analog and internet and digital. Yeah. And so that is a big part of our generation's culture is where that break happened. And so yeah. it's kind of neat to see that the same thing translates over across into Europe as well. That's kind of a, oh, yeah. a fun little realization. And I try to have like, so do you want me to tell like how the, the game works, like mechanics and what you can play yeah. or? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So it's a pretty simple game. In a nutshell, there's three stats and three attributes, a couple of more stats. And there's the weird, which is a resource you have to manage. And the weird gives you powers. Without those powers, you're no match for the horror or the things you're gonna, you're gonna meet. But using those powers is gonna change or hurt you. So in a nutshell, that's the game. And the, the main mechanic is going to manage that weird. When are you going to use it? When are you going to take the chance to use it to become stronger and overcome the swine-faced serial killer that is chasing you, but possibly hurt yourself? 
And what I've tried to do, you, you said there's like a break. Yeah, I've tried to like embed it into the characters. Like there's a lot of playable classes. I call them vibes. They're like the fire starters who makes fire, like the splinter who is super resilient. There's the asphalt kitten who is a kind of freestyler skater. A lot of classes that evoke some kind of archetypes of the 80s, 90s. So like urban tropes of teenagers, young adults, but their powers are very, I don't know, archaic, ancient. They draw their powers from that weird. So in like the characters you play will have those two aspects being like more modern urban beings, people, but with like, yeah, I don't know, this archaic heritage that they carry with them and that gives them powers. I don't know if that makes sense at all, but... It, it really does. Yeah, it does. Um, it's very reminiscent of some sort of fiction like American Gods by Neil Gaiman. Absolutely, yes. Where you have these ancient powers that are struggling to change to adapt to the modern times. They're getting left behind as humanity progresses on. And so it does have a little bit of that vibe to it. Very much. I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like I started working on The Lost Bay. First, it was like a setting I used to play with my buddies and started to play it before knowing what American Gods was. But when I discovered on the way of writing it, American Gods, it certainly had a very strong influence on me and how I wrote that thing, like those mortal beings and forces still being present in a more modern time. Yeah, yeah, that's that's. Yeah, that is one thing I find with a lot of horror games or things in the genre. You either go something kind of like Call of Cthulhu, where you're going way back to like the 1920s or earlier, or you're doing like a cyberpunk thing like Deus Ex or something like that. But nobody deals with that transition period. And so the mm -hmm. fact that you've hit that, I think, is some great new ground to cover. Oh, cool. Thanks. So in some of your past interviews on The Lost Bay, you have mentioned aspects of your childhood growing up in Corsica and being mm -hmm. exposed to some of these folk magic practices and yeah. uh, other things that people would list as being occult, perhaps. Yeah. How do you feel that exposure, those influences affected your work in creating The Lost Bay? Oh, I mean, I think that they're one of the elements that's at the roots of the project itself, because so Corsica is an island is a French island in the Mediterranean Sea between France, Italy, and North Africa. And although it's French, that has a very culture, a bit French, a lot Central Southern Italian, a bit Northern African, and a bit something else, like, uh, and a bit of like, as it's an island, it has a lot of like rests of very ancient culture. You know, it, it became modernized very late, like after the 50s. Still to this day, I think, and I haven't seen that anywhere else in Europe, the relationship with the occult or supernatural forces is part of daily life. Like you would come back from work and say, oh, fuck, I had a very bad day. I hate that person. Let's curse them. And <laughs> of course, not everybody's going to be like that. It's a minority of people probably nowadays. But I had firsthand experiences of that, like in my family or with friends, using supernatural things to heal, to change things in life that were not working well. I saw people cursing people, but just not as, I mean, the intent was really to harm those people physically by cursing them. And that was part of daily life of people who had, aside from that, a very, I don't know, normal life of mundane things of 
driving a car or going to your daily job and whatever. So however you can imagine like the life of European in the 90s, basically. And yeah, so those two realities were, yeah, really mixing. And I don't know. I kind of realized that wasn't quote unquote normal when I moved to mainland Europe. And like, I, I realized that that wasn't the experience of that. And so, yeah, like I would say the low fantasy lore of the game and of the setting are partly um, drawn from that experience. No, I kind of get that experience too. And again, it does have that American gods feel where you have the older traditions kind of intersecting with modern life. So my mother's side of the family came from yeah. Sicily. They left in the 20s. Oh, yeah. And so even in their daily life, talking about like the cursing or just the general magic, like they still do pendulums to predict, you know, gender of baby and stuff like that. Of course. That kind of folk magic is still practiced by some, unless so as it's fading as the older generations pass and the younger generations have to pick it up. But I still have seen, you know, in my life, a lot of that folk tradition magic carry through from the Mediterranean as well. And um, we have a lot of that here in Appalachia, too. There's a oh, lot oh, of yeah. Appalachian folk magic as well. Uh, most of that stems from Irish and Scottish traditions, but it's still very present if you know what right. to look oh, for. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, I love this intersection. And it does kind of give that feeling that there can be something around. So if something you call the weird kind of goes awry or if the weird becomes hostile, then how do you approach that? Yeah. And then do you use a traditional setting or do you have something modern that could shield you or divert it or something like that. And I think those give some great gameplay options. Yeah, of course, you, so as a character, like as a player in the game, you could try to solve and confront the horror. As you're mentioning it, like in two ways, you can go it like the mundane way, I would say, using tools, weapons, whatever, like whatever, like the modern world offers you, or you could pry and, and use your powers. And that would create different gaming experiences, but actually you won't survive if you don't use power. So you, like, the game mechanics kind of pushes you that direction, so. All right, so there are several Easter eggs or hidden references within the book to various different forms yeah. of media. A couple that I noticed, there is one that seems to be very heavily influenced by The Ring. In uh, in the setting, uh, what is it? In the Sleep Country setting there that you have at the beginning of the module. And uh, also a Lord of the Flies reference in the waterfront. Yeah. So what sort of media did you draw inspiration from whenever you were putting all this stuff together? And are there any Easter eggs that you're particularly proud of that you might want to give a little sneak peek? Yeah, yeah, sure. Absolutely. So... Well, the kind of media I have to say is not exclusively from the 80s or early 90s. It's kind of a mixed thing, it becomes kind of a, a huge source. And I don't, I don't, usually I don't go back to watching or reading those books and films. I kind of stick to the memory I have of them. So there's a series of, yeah, books, films, and video games as well. And I'm super happy you picked the Lord of the Flies uh, reference. And because I've, I wrote uh, a full lord of the flies inspired um setting actually i wonder if you played it ian i'm not sure in one of the playtests we did together anyways the, the, um the only ones that i did i did the arcade and we did the uh okay the last one we did together yeah no so you didn't play it so yeah there's that adventure you and it's not released that one yet you beat actually the lord of the flies which is a person with a swine mask and this was both inspired by the book itself and by a gruesome murder that happened 
where I grew up. So that's a lot of how I work. I kind of like, there's the local lore plus media and kind of mix them. I don't know usually how that happens, but these are my main friends. References. But to answer your question, I should mention quickly that the, the game that is available right now on each is a fully playable version of the game, but the game is still in develop, de development. So I'm updating it uh, every week, adding like new classes, new story prompts, etc. And right now, uh, there are a few Easter eggs. Uh, one of them is, is Doom, the video game, which is present. I saw that one. Yeah. 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 yeah the, <laughs> The difficulty levels, uh, which are the skill levels from from Doom, and I haven't published that yet. The game ends on 13th of December 1993, which is Doom's release date, first first edition Doom's release date. Oh, nice. And, well done. Yeah. Well done. And also, I've been influenced a lot uh, by indie video games from the years 2010, like Things like The Binding of Isaac influenced a lot. I don't know if you're familiar with that game. Yeah, um, I've played that one. Uh, yeah, that influenced a lot the way items are present in the game as a way to build the setting and to give extra ability to the players. And there's a lot of items. Um, there's tables of items, lots of items with different... They give you the different bonuses. This is 100% from Binding of Isaac, which is an extraordinary list of items. And they're, they're the lore of, of the video game, basically. You just find an item okay. that tells you something about the video game. So I tried to, do, to emulate them, emulate that in the Lost Bay. And a lot of, yeah, classical stuff, like, I don't know, Carrie, the film, not the book, because I haven't read the book. Uh, <laughs> a lot of Stephen King books I read when I was younger. And yeah, films, uh, mostly films. Um, I, I don't, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. But uh, no, you are perfect. Yeah, no, okay. that's exactly. And so those are some really good things to draw off of. And so for our listeners, you know, when you're trying to get a feel of what this game is, those are some really good titles to rely on. Like, hey, you know, this is what it is. So no, that is great. And I love that you've taken such a wide selection of things. And like I said, going through and reading them like, hey, no, I recognize that. And that's always fun. And you've put them together. So they seem to mesh really well. And like I said, I love the worlds that you've built. I like even your intro scenarios for your game and it's like here is this and it's just enough to spark the imagination yeah. but not locking people into a certain thing which i think was really well done as well thank you and about influences i would mention that at the end of the book there's appendix n but the last bit it's a place in game you can visit it's a it's a store you can visit like a kind of supernatural store owned by an immortal, where you find those objects that are actually the influences for the book, for the game itself. So right now there are six of them, but with each update, I'm kind of extending the list. And if you find one of the items, it's kind of one of the sources of insertion of the game, it gives you extra power. A ticket stub from carry, you're going to have extra bonus when, when you roll your dice. Okay. Like, yeah. That's a big Easter egg. That's a big Easter egg. That's a mechanical Easter egg, basically. <laughs> yeah. And I like that you've said that, you know, for you, the Bay is somewhere, you know, Mediterranean, because while I grew up in Central California, I hear the Bay, and I immediately think of San Francisco, the San Francisco Bay. And then you yeah. talked about one of your scenarios is in uh, Laguna, and just south of San Francisco, there's a famous race area called Laguna Seca, and that scenario... Mm -hmm. I immediately could transport right there. So it's kind of fun that this can work in different geographical settings as well. And it's kind of, you know, wherever the bay is to you, that can be the bay. So, I mean, if we're on the East Coast, it could be the Chesapeake Bay or, or somewhere, you know, further south or 
or Europe or wherever. So that's kind of really neat too. That's that was the yeah, like I said, like, you left uh, the world very open. Yeah, I'm super glad that you felt it that way because, again, I started playing it as a setting in France, and when I played it the first time, the first, I, I run probably four games with friends, and that's at conventions. It was explicitly in Corsica, and everybody in France has an idea of Corsica, even if they haven't been there. I mean, it's French island; they have an idea of it. But as I stumbled across like the indie scene and tried to, I don't know, adapt it for non-French, non-Italian people, non-European people, basically, it kind of naturally evolved. And I have to say, I've been very much influenced by, for example, the writing of ZDX Xu, which is a Southeast Asian author, and the way they talk about how they write about, how they write Southeast Oh, that's super hard to say that in English. Uh, SEA, I'm going to say SEA, SEA inspired <laughs> games. And yeah, that had a huge influence on me. Yeah, so I'm trying to keep it open. And so I'm super happy you're seeing it as California and could be anywhere else. I don't care. It's good. And later, like in two months, when this first look edition is going to be more complete, I'm going to run a Kickstarter. And I have already invited other designers to write their own adventure. And uh, ZDXU is one of them, by the way. So they can like just reinterpret them with their own like ideas of what is gaming, their own cultural background. So there's people from different continents, different places who are going to write their own short thing for the Bay. Because I just want to show, I don't know, like in a very simple way that the Bay is whatever you want it to be. There's certain that are there, like it's modern and ancient, basically. It's wide, it's natural, and there's a lot of concrete most and the rest is however you want it to be so no i love that yeah and i really do appreciate having that sort of a setting framework where mm-hmm. you've done all the heavy lifting to establish the general shape and then you're leaving the fine details vague so that each game master can go in and tweak it to fit their table oh, yeah. and and make it work for them that is something that is very liberating. Yeah, you know, uh, as somebody who runs games, is there isn't really a hard and fast established setting. There's just a framework, and then you can make it what you need or what you want. Yeah, that was a design goal. And honestly, I should raise my hat to a couple of games. I mean, that had a huge influence on me, like Mothership and Morkborg. Like, they do that thing so well, like in a few pages... They establish a setting and I kind of, I don't know, I read and read that again. Like I kind of, I don't know, back engineered or tried to understand what they were doing and had a chance to talk with the designers as well on the podcast. So yeah, I tried to do that. Like I won't say it the way that you said, thank you. I mean, that's exactly what I was aiming for. So yeah, thank you. for. So as we alluded to a little bit earlier, I had the privilege of being a play tester yeah. for the Lost Bay whenever it was in development. I got to play on the older system before you changed systems and uh, also recently with one of your modules that you came out with where all three of us players were named Ian. So it was a little bit (laughs) interesting to try and navigate that. So you state in the front of the book that the new system is inspired heavily by Spencer Campbell's Lumen and Cairn by Yochai Gall. Absolutely. So from a design standpoint, what led you to change the system from the way it was earlier to the way it is presented now? So at first I designed a a custom system, which was okay, but there were a few 
things missing from it. One of them was character growth. I like, it was kind of a nightmare. I, I worked so much how to integrate character growth in a meaningful way to the system I had designed and couldn't find anything that worked. And um, I took a break from the development of the game for external reasons, basically doing too much stuff. And during that break, I read a few times again, Cairn by Yochai Gal and Spencer Campbell's games, Nova and the Lumen framework. And I'm not sure what happened, but uh, I mean, you know, kind of a eureka moment after spending like months of tweaking, changing, adjusting, like the SCAR system in Cairn is just like perfect. It's like organic, in-game, in-story character growth through whatever happens to the characters in games. And I needed that. On the other hand, a few times during playtests, as characters are young adults and sometimes older teenagers, I've been faced with situations where players were, I don't know how to put it, kind of afraid that their characters might be hurt or might be spooked off too much while encountering weird and horror. And you're part of that weirdness. So the easiest way to achieve that was to give those characters powers. And the Lumen system by Spencer Campbell does that beautifully. So from Cairn by Yochai Gal, the scars, and from Lumen, the powers, basically. And the resource you have to manage to be able to use those powers. Both games have uh, three attributes. Uh, they use them in a slightly different way. I went more with the Lumen system on that one. But yeah, pretty simple. A stat for health or HP or whatever you want to call it. In the Lost Bay, it's called heart. A resource, weird, to manage to use powers. And the cool thing is that the classes called Vibes in the game have each their own scar table. So they're going to be hurt in a different way. And scars are a way to kind of build the setting without having tons of pages of lore. I mean, if you play and something happens to you, it's going to happen in a peculiar way that is linked to who you are, what kind of vibe you play, and you're going to discover something about the setting as you grow, as you evolve, as you get a scar. But again, in a very open way, you're going to have to interpret it as a player or as a GM. But I very much enjoyed reading through the different vibes that you built. Those were a lot of fun to go over. Oh, yeah. Well, I have a bunch of them. I have like 16 <laughs> ready. I'm still fine-tuning them. I'm going to add them one by one. Probably in the next update, there's going to be the vibes you can play once you're dead that oh, are nice. unlocked after your death, which are... Nice. I've got my fingers crossed, and I'm really hoping that the Junker manages to make it into the new version oh, yeah. at some point. <laughs> absolutely. Because that, that was my first character. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, that's a tough one yeah. to adapt, I have to say, to the new system. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. The junk, I, I the can see, I can understand why, because at least the way it was whenever I was playing it, it was the one that didn't really have the supernatural powers. Yeah. They were like the mundane person just trying to make it work with all this weird stuff going on around them. Yeah. I'm going to try to keep that, and but using like the mechanics of the powers, just trying to... Yeah, basically the Junker is a class who has lots of junk, lots of items, so many yeah. items. So <laughs> who can find them, who can hack them, who can use them. So yeah, I'm trying to adapt that into the powers of the, the new engine or framework. But the Junker is going to be back. Be sure of that. Don't worry. Excellent. <laughs> All right. So 
we always like to advocate for a session zero for all of our games, you know, just to make sure that everybody involved in the game is on the same page. We all have the same expectations to make sure that we understand what everybody's preferences are so that we don't make anybody uncomfortable in the game. And you make a point to go into detail and expressly tell people, look, this is a horror game. You need to establish your safety tools early on. Yeah. Things like lines and veils and the X card. So what do you feel is the importance of having these safety tools built into the game from the start? Okay. So a couple of things I played in two moments of my life. When I was a kid and as a grown up, I started again playing like seven, eight years ago. And when I was a kid, like really young, like 12, 13 years old, um, I think we didn't know that, but we were using So whenever one of us was feeling uncomfortable with something, we just stopped the game and changed like the shape of the game just to accommodate what that person needs. I mean, things as simple as I don't want my character to die. Okay, we're just going to make up something. So because that makes me feel bad to more serious stuff. So then I had a huge hiatus, maybe a lot of people. And I started playing again later, like in shops or conventions. And a few times I had bad experiences, like feeling hostage to a table or to a situation that was really making me uncomfortable and having no easy way to deal with that. Like I was, I didn't feel like stopping game saying, okay, I'm feeling bad. I'm, please let's do something. This is not good. And this is something that I think should be avoided at most in human interaction and especially in something that is called a game, like where you want it to be meaningful, but enjoyable and fun for everybody. And especially when we're playing a horror where there's going to be a lot of themes or things that might happen in game that could be painful emotionally for some people. So right now in that version of the game, the first look, there's a chapter like like, encouraging people to use safety tools. And I mentioned three of them without giving much detail about how to use them, veils, lines, and X cards. But I mean, these are just three safety tools. There's plenty of others. Just my way of encouraging people to do some research about them. And I think that just be willing to understand what our safety tools are for and trying to use them and bring them to table just half of the work even if those tools are not perfect of course they're not. and um yeah i found that yeah absolutely extremely important that everybody feels safe and has a good time because otherwise i mean again especially playing horror game you could have very different radical experiences a lot of fun or a thing really uncomfortable and that's bad so yeah yeah i agree all right i think that's the end of my questions james have you got anything more to add no, I think I got my questions answered too. So again, I really like how you formed this up. I really love the settings you developed. I Thank like you. that intermittent right between analog and modern technology. I think that is a great place to drop a lot of horror. That's where yeah. ghosts live, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Those yeah. liminal spaces. Yeah. 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 We talked about that a little bit with Goblin Archives. We had him back on back in uh, October talking about liminal horror. And yeah, that is an interesting sort of place to put horror in in those transitions. Yeah, definitely. It's in similar interests with Goblin Arts. Who's a a friend? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) All right. So 
In that case, one of the things we love to do with our guests at the end of the interview is a little activity we call the monster mashup, where we roll some dice on our random table and we create a monster on the fly. And I think personally for today, I think we should try and keep the theme of this one something that will fit in a Lost Bay setting. So, Eco, if you are ready and you have your dice roller ready, we're going to start off with a D4. For locomotion. Locomotion. Well, it's a four. A four. It swims. Okay, so this fits in with our bay setting perfectly. Yeah. And again, swimming as we go, it's not necessarily swimming through water. It can swim through a number of different media, just swimming in general. Um, We've had things that swim through pollution or air or even swimming through earth at at times. It is uh, an idea, not a hard rule. Yeah, we had one a while back. We kept it for more of a cyberpunk sort of setting, and it mm-hmm. swam through uh, electromagnetic fields. Of course. Yeah. So, course. yeah, we can interpret it as tightly or as loosely as we need to. Okay. I think I'm going to go with the each roll, you know. But uh... Okay. And so the next roll is going to be a D6. Yeah. What does it eat? Ooh, it eats a five. Five. Meat slash carrion. Okay. Again, this is fitting quite well. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Okay. All right. And then another D6 for mm-hmm. size. Size. And its size is a three. Three. Medium. So it's that would be okay. about human size. Okay. Perfect. That's very beige as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, could be something that's chilling in some tide pools, maybe something that comes up mm-hmm. on land or just... Solely takes things on water, eating meat. So again, this is very likely predatory. So yeah, meat. But the, it, it could be a scavenger in, as well because it's be meat or carrion. Well. Carrion, yeah. So maybe it's in the high school swimming swimming pool, you know, or yeah. in the sports <laughs> center. It could be living in <laughs> yes. the sports center. It could be the crocodiles living in the sewers. Yes, yeah. <laughs> crocodile uh, plus swimming coach kind of mashup. Yeah. I don't know. In Florida, there was a swimming coach that got in trouble because he'd have his swimmers go and then he would toss in a small alligator into the pool to, quote, right. motivate them to swim faster. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, okay. That sounds like Florida, man. <laughs> All right. Next up is a D8 yeah. for social organization. Okay. Seven. Seven. A herd. 26 okay. to 100 herd. individuals. Ooh. Okay. So I'm kind of thinking, and again, this kind of from my experience from Central California, but they have like the elephant seals that kind of all gather up. And what if these things became carnivorous? And so you have, again, they can be larger, but I mean, they're about six, seven feet long. They weigh several hundred pounds. I mean, they are carnivorous, James. They just eat fish, not people. Granted, yeah. (laughs) Granted. Okay, fair enough. Well, I'm thinking Um, more. Yeah. Okay, fine. (laughs) We can also... Carnivorous sorts of people, but yes. We could also have something like a school of fish sort of scenario. Yeah. You know, this could be just like five foot long piranhas or something along Ooh, those lines. Okay. But yeah, we, we need to get a little bit more of an idea of what we're doing here. We still have a few rolls. Do we want to roll on the D10 native environment chart? Do you no, think, I think that? No. We can, but I like keeping this on the bull. I mean, the bay can be anywhere. So yeah, let's go ahead and roll this and we'll see okay. where the bay is, perhaps. Okay. What kind of bay? So give us a D10, yeah. please. It's a three. A three. 
This is appropriate. Um, can you give me one more roll? It doesn't matter what. And let me know even or odd. Okay. Even. Even. Freshwater coastal. Okay. okay. No, that, that works. So we're looking like something like a delta or something along those lines. Yeah. yeah. It's the sinking marshes. Just those marshes. Yeah. Like melting with the sea. And they're a wicked place. Okay. So, yeah. And as you point out in your initial setting sort of thing, this is also turned into a bit of a dumping ground. So there, yeah. there are all of these things going into it that are just completely changing the wildlife that are living there. So, yeah, that could be sort of a mutagen thing. What about crabs? It, what about oh, crabs? You know? Yeah. 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 Small or yeah, so you have a large crab that's social. I could see that. And they're just going through and they're breaking down everything. I mean, if it's people, then they're eating them. They could also be breaking down like the waste in the barrel. So like they're trying to use that, maybe part of incorporating that into their shells like a hermit crab would. So, you know, they're sitting there breaking down metallic waste and trying to plate themselves with it. Absolutely. And they live in herds, crabs, you know? Yeah. 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 So we could do crabs. We could do crayfish as well. That would also be a similar sort of thing. Yeah. All right. Next is a D12 for method of defense. Okay. We got a three. A three. It has a venomous bite. Perfect. Which, again, plays into the whole toxic waste dump sort of thing. Yeah. So they're adapting to their environment. And so they've got all of this toxic junk just in their bodies and they're able to incorporate it as a weapon, as a natural weapon. Of course. You can see that. Either like... Go ahead. Yeah, they don't have blood anymore. Like, you know, they just have yeah. junk juice in place of blood. You know, they're just like, they're becoming like weird chemical mutants. And yeah, they inject you whatever they have in their body. Gonna Maybe it's going to transform, either kill you or transform you as well. Yeah, transform okay. you if it doesn't kill you. If yeah, it does, no, I can see that. I like that. So I was thinking either something that where their claws are coated or like you said, they've ingested so much stuff that if you actually get into their mandible, that leeches in that way. Yeah. So kind of like a zombie bite almost. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Because, you know, nature wants to turn everything into a crab anyway. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So next is going to be another D12 for creature yeah. type. Uh, this is okay. this is based off of D and D creature types, but I think we can use it to guide where we're going. Right. So it's gonna be a four. A four. It is a construct. It's a construct. again appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. So it's becoming biomechanical, but organically, which is yeah. a weird way to go about it. But I like it. And it yeah, fits with I, the theme. It really does. I like it. I like it very much. All right. What's next? So next is a D twenty roll. Yeah. Quirks. And it's 14. 14. Innovative can use rudimentary tools. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. And that's how it's scavenging and breaking down a lot of these wastes. Yeah, let's make it like, and yeah, breaking down waste and also maybe, I don't know, this is how like people, like people they eat or whatever, maybe they chunks of limbs or faces from their preys that are stuck to them that grow on them i don't know why i'm saying that so yeah no i could see that where they're trying to like actually make i mean if they're intelligent maybe they're actually using the bones as like a form of decoration or jewelry or whatever they consume and that's part of where we said they're breaking down the metal and they're attaching it to the shell but if they were to eat a human they would do the same with our hard bits as well because it's just something that's 
close to chitinous so they can use it to decorate and augment themselves. Okay. And I and I see because we have this whole construct thing where they are mutating as a response to their environment and they're using these rudimentary tools to break down the things that they come across. If we're staying with our crab crayfish sort of monster having like a claw that has turned into almost like a pair of scissors or a pair of bolt cutters or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Something very metallic and very sharp that is designed specifically to sever very hard materials. Absolutely. The other thing I'm thinking has, have you ever seen they're in Siberia, but where the people had built like their huts out of the mammoth bones, mm-hmm. yeah. you could have that with these crabs or these crayfish where they kind of look like a bone golem if they've consumed enough people, where it's just this shambling mound of bones that they kind of clink along with them as well. I can imagine we the could... sound they'd make. Oh yeah, that sound would be oh, yeah. yeah. Or we can, you know, also borrow some inspiration from like the mantis shrimp. You know, where they have that very strong, the hammer, and they they can punch really fast. Oh, yeah. And they they use that concussive force to stun their prey. You know, I love that. Yeah, yeah, I do. You know, if that becomes metallic, that's a sledgehammer. Yeah, Yeah, that's deadly. Okay. Yeah, and that's something that they can also use as a way to break apart larger chunks into smaller chunks for easier consumption. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's absolutely terrifying. I'm going to tell you. That's that's yeah, it is. It is, but I love where it's going. And now we make it weird. Okay. <laughs> so it can I get weird, because it wasn't weird until now, right? It wasn't enough. Absolutely. Weird. So can I get a D one hundred roll, please? Okay. That's a thirty. Thirty. Its droppings are intensely addictive narcotics. Oh. <laughs> I mean, that kind of works with it, you know, breaking down the waste products and stuff like that. You know, maybe it's because, I mean, you have like where people flush all the pharmaceuticals and stuff and it winds up in the water and the sewage system. So maybe their body is naturally like filtering that out and they're excreting what's left of those pharmaceuticals because their bodies can't use them. That's cool. One of the things that we've had in our area, in our region for a long time is people cooking crystal meth. You know, yeah. where you and and you're you're taking Sudafed, you're taking your ephedrine, and you're combining it with a whole cocktail of whatever dangerous chemicals that you want in order to get the drug, this very highly addictive drug, and then you end up finding all of these huge, very toxic dump sites, or you know they end up exploding mm. their mobile home or whatever. <laughs> I almost see this as being the inverse of that, where these things are consuming the chemicals and excreting something that functions like a crystal meth. Yeah, yeah. I could see that. And then, too, again... Oh, go ahead, please. No, I mean, if that was, like, for a Blast Bay game, I mean, I can't imagine, like, all the story you can build around, you know, like people hunting those things and it's dangerous and maybe the players are sent to hunt those things without really knowing what they're doing and where they're going because there's somebody who's building this huge legal business and they need that resource and so they're sending the players and once they then they understand where they are too late they're gazillions of crab and just so cool yeah, I like so that cool. too. And again, if these are naturally excreting this, then, you know, people are going to realize that. And so the people that can't afford it on the streets are going to try to get this, you know, quote, quote, raw form. And so I'm kind of thinking 
like if you've played the early Fallout games, Fallout One and Fallout Two, where you had like the junkies on jet and stuff like that, where they were a little more strung out and they were a little more desperate, so they tend to be more violent and they protect their territories. And so you have this kind of haggard group of people living nearby, even though it is very dangerous. And this would also build up that atmosphere where your party's going to come in because those people, one, are not going to be in a stable state of mind necessarily. And then they're also going to be protective of their resources as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, playing a little more into that, the whole history we have in this area of first moonshiners and then later uh, marijuana farmers where they would set up booby traps to keep people out of where they were working. And so it would be very dangerous to be not affiliated with the people who control this particular area and the animals living in this particular area to go into it to try and harvest because not only are you dealing with the dangers of the creature itself, but you're also dealing with the people in the area and whatever security measures that they've taken. Yeah. So yeah, it starts building real fast. And yeah, it really yeah, does. Yeah, yeah. That's an adventure building here. Like it's a more All right, James, do, do you want to do need more roles or I'll let you do this one. Um, we're going to do one more yeah. D100 roll. Uh, we've got 95. Ooh, I rolled it. I see here is shaped slash bears markings like a letter of an ancient language. A colony or herd can be used to decipher the dead script. Okay. I kind of see this like, especially if we're dealing with like the horror or the weird that maybe this is a metaphysical script, like an angelic script or an infernal script, whatever the weird is attached to it. It is the script and the language of whatever is pushing into the bay at this point, whatever that horror is, it's its language. Yeah. I mean, maybe the droppings while they're addictive, maybe they're psychedelic. And you have to be under the influence of the psychedelic to see and read the patterns and imaging on their shells. Oh, yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. Makes a lot of sense. I'm going to really listen to the episode and write an adventure from that. I mean, that's so so cool. Yeah, yeah, please. If you you make it, let us know. That'd be great. I'd love to see this on the table. Yeah. All right. So let's do a quick recap of what we have so far. So it swims. It feeds on meat slash carrion. Yeah. Uh, I think we have interpreted this as carrion as all of the junk and runoff yeah. and dumpings into this area. It is medium sized, so roughly the size of a human. Yeah, They exist in herds of 26 to 100 individuals. Their native environment is freshwater coastal. They have a venomous bite. They are a construct creature type. They're innovative, so they're able to use rudimentary tools. Their droppings are addictive narcotics, and they are shaped or bare markings that are the letters of an ancient language. And if you have a whole group of them together, you can interpret that language. Yeah, if you survive. If you survive. survive. (laughs) That is a big if. That is a huge Um, if. So now the hardest question of all, what are we going to name it? Oh, well... That's a hard one for me, you know? I mean, not being a native English speaker, I'm going to just make up some gibberish. So yeah, go ahead with the... So how are we going to name them? I mean, if you want to borrow from languages you know, that works just as well also. I'm trying to think of something that could be like, you know, the voice of the unknown or the word of the unknown, kind of like a 
like I said, where these can be interpreted or they're semi-psychedelic or addictive. I'm trying to go along those lines with something, perhaps. Yeah, the words. That's that's what's starting point. I like that. Words. They are the words themselves, like, you know. Or they're a messenger, perhaps. Maybe they're a herald of some sort. So my brain goes first to this narcotic because that seems to be the key impetus for people interacting with it. That's okay. So I'm thinking something along the lines of like crackfish. (laughs) Going off of that crayfish (laughs) sort of thing because, you know, it's that narcotic, you know. That's the intense crackfish. Um, Or again, something like. I almost want to go something along the lines like a seer because again it would change your vision. Yeah. So okay. like a basier or a delta seer or something along those lines perhaps. Okay. Mm. I like that seer thing. I don't know if that makes sense. They're angels somehow, you know. They're weird okay. angels, but they're angels somehow. Yeah. They're biblical angels. They're eyes upon eyes. Eyes, they're yeah. Wheels of eyes. <laughs> Well, I mean, if you want to go full blasphemy, we you know, there's the Metatron, which is literally like the word of God, you know, and it was supposed to be the scribe of God that would write things down. We could call them like Metatron crab or something like that. Perfect. Or, you know, or just like, the Metatrons. Yeah, like Metatron crab <laughs> sounds just perfect. Listen, when you said they had markings and stuff, tying that to the Lost Bay, I'm writing a depth crawl in the marshes area okay and spoiler at the center of the marshes where you will end up or where you're trying to go there's a pillar an ancient pillar with markings and they're the words of the faceless god which is trying to rise and reconquer the bay so yeah i think these could be their words of the faceless oh yeah but metatron crab i don't know words okay you like metatron we can go with that yeah oh yeah absolutely but that is like much into like whatever a lot I'm trying to architect. I don't know. Plus, Metatron sounds really, I don't know, ominous. I don't know, Metatrons. It yeah. does, yeah. It, it is a great sounding name. <laughs> yeah. But it also has that sort of early digital feeling to it, too. It does. Yeah. It, you yeah. know, yeah. just reminds me of the old 80s Transformers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not only that, but, you know, Tron. Yeah. yeah. The, the movie Tron. Oh, Tron. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah, it's it's got okay. so many so many levels where it can sort of meld yes. in, and it feels right. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Let's, I agree. let's rock with it then. All right, so I think we have a winner. I think we've figured that one out. Huzzah! Yeah. All right, that's cool. Well, that the was a whole lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, that was that a fun was one. Fun. That was fun and so unexpected. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> These never go the direction we think they're going to go. They're of like, course. I think yeah. it's going to be, and it's over there. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Very rarely. Do we hit on something early on and it actually stays pretty much the same all the way through? But yeah, I like where this one ended up turning yeah. out. Yeah. I mean, yes. Visually, I'm thinking if you've seen those huge coconut crabs, that's kind of what I'm getting visually. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So another thing that we like to do with our guests whenever they come on is to have them give a shout out to someone else in the TTRPG sphere. It can yeah, be another sure. creator, a podcaster, artist, whatever, as long as they're connected to TTRPGs. Who would you like to give a shout out to today? Okay, so I'd like to, well, first of all, there's a bunch of people I'd like to give a shout out to because I feel like that the scene is really like a huge network of people mm-hmm. exchanging ideas, talents, working together, etc. But i like to give a shout out today specifically to three people. Is that too much? Three of no, them? No, that's fine. No, go for it. Three people which are, I'm not sure if they are new voices in the scene, but, but they are to me. 
I'm going to like mispronounce the names. I'm sorry about that. But they're Justin Vanderman, who has an excellent newsletter called Your RPG Confuses Me, where they do interviews <laughs> to RPG designers about layout and how the layout has been built, how it does influence, uh, I don't know, like the gaming experience. So th the three shout outs are going to be very much layout oriented, just realizing okay. that there's a Dune Press who's a RPG, an RPG designer and has a newsletter, a couple of newsletters, where they talk not only about mechanics, they kind of do a lot of, I like to think of them as, that's not a, a nice word, but I would use that in French or Italian, an autopsy, autopsies of games, understanding how the mechanics work from a statistical point of view, and they share a lot of resources about design as well. And there's Clayton Nolesty, who has a blog about layout design and putting out a lot of resources, and those three persons are doing that, putting out a lot of resources for players, GMs, and designers and publishers to facilitate game design and layout tools, and that's so amazing. And actually, like the Lost Bay First Look, uh, layout is built 100% using one of the templates Clayton Nolestin has made, um, which is called uh, Classic Explorer, if I'm not wrong. And yeah, and Clayton is putting out so many useful resources that speed up layout and, but it's more than layout. I mean, layout in a way that impacts game design, at least for me. I mean, so yeah, Justin Vandermeer, Exeunt Press, Clayton Nolestin. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. All right. And finally, we want to open the floor and let you plug your stuff. So where can oh, we find good. you? Where can we find your work? Where can we go to throw money at you? The floor is yours. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, well, you can find the Lost Bay Digital HIO page, uh, which is the dash lost dash bay dot itch dot io. So basically, basically all my social or website are the Lost Bay something. So uh, the Lost Bay game on itch dot io, the dash lost dash bay dot itch dot io. The home of the Lost Bay Studio is thelostbaystudio.com. That's the website of my shop. Currently on hiatus because I'm changing fulfillment partners, but it's going to reopen in a few weeks, a couple of weeks. And Twitter, if Twitter is still going to be there when you release this episode, is the Lost Bay. So yeah, it's pretty easy. The Lost Bay, the Lost Bay Studio, everything is the Lost Bay. I don't know. I call everything the Lost Bay. I haven't put much thought in it. It just came up. I don't know. So everything is the last bit. Uniformity is helpful whenever you're yes, whenever totally. <laughs> you yeah. want people to find you. Well, Eco, thank you very much for joining thank us you. today. We've had thank a blast. You. I had a blast. Uh, it was super fun talking to you and interesting having a chance to reflect back on the game's design. So thank you so much for having me. And thank you everyone for listening. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, you can send us an email under common taste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through the burning Hulk of Twitter at <laughs> UCT homebrew. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, Twitch, and Mastodon at under common taste. We also have a niche store under common That's where you can find our liminal horror adventure beneath the lake and my solo RPG forever home. We have a Patreon, patreon.com slash undercommontaste. That's where our write-ups go. If you want to help support the show financially, you can go and become a patron. And finally, we have a Discord. You can find the link to the Discord in our show notes, and we would love for you to come and chat with us. Absolutely. If this is your first time hearing us, welcome. We're so glad you found our podcast. You can find our other podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. 
Also coming up, if you are in the area, we will be at RobCon in Abington, September 3rd and 4th for our first convention. Yes. And we may or may not be doing a world building panel. So come and see us in Abington, <laughs> Virginia, if you're going to be in the area. Uh, stay safe, everyone. And we will see you again in two weeks. Happy gaming. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Undercommon Taste. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Kroll and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marykroll.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycroll. Our logo is by David Sutherland. You can find more of David's work on deviantart.com slash davidsutherland or on instagram.com slash willx underscore 73. We'll be back in two weeks, so stay safe. And we'll see you then.